Well, good morning again. This week we're in Ezekiel chapter 44, verses 28 through 31, and I've titled this, God is all we need, he is our inheritance. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We just ask that your Holy Spirit will teach us today. Help us to have humble hearts which are teachable. And so we don't just hear these things, learn these things, and understand these things, but not do these things. Help us not to be like the person in James who looks at his face in the mirror, but then forgets what he looks like when he turns away from the mirror. Help us to use a mirror to see what needs cleaning, and then to clean our face. So we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So let's do a memory verse together. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 to 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Awesome. So I've got the introduction and outline there and also the revision. That's just there for your background knowledge because we've been through that before. But what I will point out just quickly is where this prophecy fits in. It's a long prophecy, chapter 40 through 48 of Ezekiel. And it fits in the time period in what we call the 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ on earth, which starts after Jesus comes back at his second coming, and it finishes with the great white throne judgment. So, as we study this, and we're talking about the priests and all that kind of stuff, they will be ministering in the temple, which Jesus will build in the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ on earth. So just so you know where all this is happening. So we're going to get straight into it. Ezekiel 44 verse 28, God is all we need. He is our inheritance. And it says, it shall be in regard to their inheritance that I am their inheritance. You shall give them no possession in Israel, for I am their possession. So, who's talking here? Do you remember? From last week? Who's the person talking? It's Jesus, yeah. Well done. So, Jesus himself is taking Ezekiel on a tour of the new temple complex in the millennial Jerusalem. And he's telling Ezekiel what the laws are regarding the priests. And this is the next law. We covered several before, and they all have a lot of application to us, and we're getting a lot from this. And this time, he says, it shall be in regard to their inheritance, the inheritance of the priests, that I am their inheritance. You shall give them no possession in Israel, for I am their possession. And Wisby says, like the Old Testament priests, the Millennial Kingdom priests will not have an inheritance of land, but will have the Lord as their inheritance and be able to live from the temple offerings. So, there's a good application here. So before I keep going, what is an inheritance? Yeah. I mean, we don't often want our parents to, you know, kick the bucket so we can get their money. <laughs> it's not the right thing to be thinking, is it? But, guess what? Someone has already died, so we can receive. Yeah? 
And we'll get into that more in a minute. I think you know who that is. So I think it's really exciting to see how this applies to the church. God's dealing with us as a church are quite unique. So some of how he deals with us is similar to the Levites and priests who receive no possession or land in Israel. And that is that we receive no promises for physical blessings while on this earth. And we must rely on God for our daily bread, both spiritual and physical. However, our spiritual inheritance is something we should all be looking forward to big time. Now, why? Well, the believer's inheritance is nothing less than their salvation. Knowing God, loving God, being loved by God, being a child of God, having eternal life, living forever in the presence of God, already freed from the penalty of sin, that's justification, being freed from the power of sin, sanctification. And one day we will be freed from the presence of sin when I receive my resurrection body, and that is glorification. I will be perfect in body, mind, and spirit. I will, along with all other believers, inherit the whole world, the earth, and rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. After that, it doesn't stop there. After that, I will then inherit a home in a city that comes down from heaven to the new earth and will last forever. And that is, of course, the new Jerusalem. So we have a lot to look forward to. So what did Jesus promise he'd give us? Everything he had, right? And what does Jesus own? Everything. So let's learn about our inheritance. So the first thing we've got to learn is that the believer's inheritance, their salvation, is in Christ, meaning it is both undeserved and unearned, and therefore we can never lose it. So Ephesians 1.11. In Christ also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And from the New Living it says, Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, or in Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. So our inheritance is in Christ. So if you're not in Christ, then you have no inheritance. You must be in the family, so to speak. So, what this verse in Ephesians tells us is that our inheritance was given to us in advance. It was predestined long before we were ever born. So it's not something that we can deserve or earn. It has nothing to do with what we do or don't do. When it was given to us, when Christ decided to give it to us, or the Father decided to give it to us, we hadn't yet done anything good or bad. It's good, isn't it? So the best thing about us having done nothing to receive it is that once we have received it, we can never lose it. So secondly, the believer's inheritance is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit living in us. So again, another reason why we can't lose our inheritance. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, it says, You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And in Hebrews 13.5, God says he will never leave you nor forsake you. So the believer has the Holy Spirit in them to give them the assurance that this process of salvation that God has started in us will be completed. Yeah, He will finish it. Philippians 1.6, one of my favorite verses. 
Do you not? Being confident on this very thing that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So once a person is a believer, there is nothing that they can do that will thwart God's plan for their life. And that plan is, of course, to make that person into the image of Christ. Now the third thing we can learn is that it's the Father, not our good works, that qualifies us as believers for our share of the inheritance. So Colossians 1, 12-14 Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of or share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So, what we learn here is he must be qualified to share in the inheritance. So, what does it mean to share? Well, our inheritance is like a communal inheritance. We all inherit the same thing. Together, all believers will inherit all things. Everything that Christ possessed, which is, of course, everything, will be ours to share with him. It's just like parents leaving everything they own to their children when they die. All the children get to inherit the same thing. Romans 8, 31 and 32. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he, the Father, did not spare even his own Son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Matthew 5, 5. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. And then Romans 4.13 For the promise that he, Abraham, would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now what does it mean to qualify? Well, the Greek word is hikanu, but it means to make sufficient or capable, to make complete, to bring to perfection, or to enable. So enable us, make us complete, make us sufficient to share in this inheritance. So what did he do to make us qualified? Well, it says there in those verses in Colossians, he has delivered us, meaning rescued from certain death, delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us, that means transferred us from Satan's kingdom, into the kingdom of the son of his love. So we're transferred from one kingdom into the other. There's also redemption, and that means being bought out of the slave market of sin through the blood of his son Jesus. And there's also the forgiveness of all sins through the blood of his son Jesus. Again, those verses are in Colossians. So that's what it means to be qualified. Transferred from Satan's kingdom into God's kingdom, redeemed and forgiven. And then we can partake or share in the inheritance, our salvation. Fourthly, the believer's inheritance is eternal. It will never fade away or grow old. Hebrews 9.15 That is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people, so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under that first covenant. Also, 1 Peter 1.23 For you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. As the scriptures say, 
People are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And that word is the good news that was preached to you. And 1 Peter 3, 1-6 All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again, because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation. Great expectation. And we have a priceless inheritance. An inheritance that is kept or reserved in heaven for you. Pure and undefiled. Beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. So I just want to focus on verse 4 in 1 Peter chapter 1. An inheritance that is kept, reserved, guarded or watched over in heaven for you. It's like you win lotto, but you're not allowed to you know, go and pick up the check for three months' time or something. But the check's got your name on it, and you know that it's waiting there for you. And so when that time comes, it's yours. It's reserved for you. It's protected. And verse 5, so be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead. So this world tells you that you find your joy in this world. It tells you that it will last. And we think we will find lasting satisfaction in this world. But that's a lie. Compared to the reality of the spiritual realm and what we have in eternity, this world is like a mirage. If you're in the desert and you see water, is it going to satisfy your thirst? You know, there's a heat shimmering on the sand, you see the mirage of water. You can drink all of that pretend water, but you will never be satisfied. The things of the world will never satisfy us. And as Jesus said in John 4.13, He who drinks of this water will thirst again, but he who drinks of the water I give him will never thirst. So Abraham understood this that this life and this earth are only temporary. Abraham was ultimately looking forward to the New Jerusalem, as described in Revelation 21, and so should we be. So I'm going to read those verses from Hebrews. Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going, and even when he reached the land God promised him, he lived there by faith. Now, we should apply this to us, yeah? For he was like a foreigner living in tents. And so did Isaac and Jacob, who inherited the same promise. Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. So living in tents means you have a light hold on life. You don't look to accumulate a lot of stuff. You don't look to achieve a lot of stuff in this world for the sake of just achieving and accumulating, right? And enjoying. We're just here to fulfill God's purpose. Basically, this is boot camp, yeah? This is a preparation for the next life. So, confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations. Now, fifthly, 
Like any other will or testament, the person, the testador, who leaves or writes the will must die before it comes into effect. And Hebrews 9, 16 and 17, 26 and 28 tells us this. So I've just condensed a lot of Hebrews chapter 9 to make it quicker to read, get the main points. Now when someone leaves a will, it is necessary to prove that the person who made it is dead. The will goes into effect only after the person's death. While the person who made the will is still alive, the will cannot be put into effect. But now, once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the ages to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. So also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, the rapture, the second coming, not to do with our sins, but to bring salvation, our inheritance, to all who are eagerly waiting for him. So, in the Old Testament, you had the promises of salvation, like in Isaiah and all those passages, Ezekiel, what we've been reading. But until Jesus actually died, those promises could not ever be given or received. When Jesus died, then we could receive those promises. So we have begun to receive our inheritance when we're saved, but we will finish receiving our inheritance when we see him, when he comes back for us, when we receive our glorified bodies and live in the direct presence of Jesus forever. So I've got a summary of our application of talking about our inheritance, and I got it from Got Questions, and it says this. One day we will take possession of our portion, our heritage, and our full inheritance. John Calvin writes of our inheritance. We do not have the full enjoyment of it at present. We walk in hope. And we do not see the thing as if it were present, but we see it by faith. Although then, the world gives itself liberty to trample us underfoot, as they say. Although our Lord keeps us tried with many temptations, although he humbles us in such a way that it may seem we are as sheep appointed to the slaughter, so that we are continually at death's door, yet we are not destitute of a good remedy. And why? Seeing that the Holy Spirit reigns in our hearts, we have something for which to give praise even in the midst of all our temptations. Therefore, we should rejoice, mourn, grieve, give thanks, be content, wait. And that's from Calvin's um, Ephesian sermons. And the quote continues from Got Questions. When we understand and value the glory that awaits us, we are better able to endure whatever comes our way in this life. We can give God praise even during trials because we have his guarantee that we will receive all he has promised. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. 2 Corinthians 4.17 Revelation 21.4 gives us a brief but beautiful description of our inheritance. He will wipe every tear from their eyes There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old 
order of things has passed away. God and man will dwell together. Everything will be made new. The bejeweled city, the new Jerusalem, will be our residence. The river of life will issue from God's throne. The healing tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit will grow there too. There will be no night there because the eternal light of the Lamb will fill the new heaven and the new earth and shine upon all the heirs of God. David writes, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance, Psalm 16, 5-6. And that is why we fix our eyes on not what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal, 2 Corinthians 4, 18. So it's a good thing to meditate on, the way they put all those verses together there. We should be looking ahead to receive what is real, what is eternal, and not be distracted by the physical, temporary things that we have here. So let's move on. Let's come back to Ezekiel, chapter 44. I'll read verses 28 through 31. And the title this, God will provide for the priests. It shall be, in regard to their inheritance, that I am their inheritance. You shall give them no possession in Israel, for I am their possession. They shall eat the grain offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. Every dedicated thing in Israel shall be theirs. The best of all the first fruits of any kind, and every sacrifice of any kind from all your sacrifices, shall be the priests. Also you shall give to the priests the first of your ground meal, to cause a blessing to rest on your house. The priests shall not eat anything, bird or beast, that died naturally or was torn by wild beasts. So let's just start at verse 31, the last one there. It says, the priest should not eat anything bird or beast that died naturally or was torn by wild beasts. Can you think of a reason why? What was one of the rules for the priest? They're not allowed to touch something. Anything that is? Dead. Yeah. So that's why they're not allowed to touch any dead animals. They become unclean. It doesn't obviously include the animals that are sacrificed at the temple. And verses 28 through 30, just to summarize these verses, you shall give them no possession in Israel. They shall eat the grain offering, the best of all first fruits of any kind, and every sacrifice of any kind from your sacrifices shall be the priests. Now, think of this from a worldly point of view, a strictly human point of view, right? All the other tribes, they get their land, they can farm, you know, the agricultural society. They're okay. They've got a bit of security. But the Levites don't have a large lot of land for each of their families. They just are serving the temple. They have a place to live. God's provided a place to live. We'll find out in the next couple of weeks. But it's not enough to make a living. It's just a place to live. So how are they going to get by? God gives them no way of providing for themselves. They have to trust God to provide for them. Their only source of income was from the tithes and offerings of the people. And they trusted God to provide for them as they committed themselves to working in and around the temple. Now, these priests in the millennial temple will not go hungry because God's new covenant promises to Israel actually include both spiritual blessings and physical blessings. Remember before we've gone through and looked at the physical blessings that the nation of Israel will receive? 
There's going to be a garden of Eden. Bumper crops every year. There'll be no shortage of food, no shortage of fruit. The flocks and herds will be abundant. There'll be no shortage of anything. They're not going to go hungry. Now, let's apply this to us. It's similar but not the same for believers in the New Testament. We also have no possession or part in this world. We are strangers or sojourners just passing through. Hebrews 11.13 The main difference is that God does not promise the church physical blessings except to supply our needs. Okay, what are our needs? Well, Paul, let's consider Paul. He was often hungry, thirsty, naked, homeless and poor. But he said that God met all his needs. Yeah? So obviously God knew that these material things were not what Paul needed at the time. But what did Paul always have? Well, the things that God promised him. Yeah? God promised Paul and gave Paul contentment, peace, love, faith, and abiding joy in his relationship with Christ. And of course, we receive those as we submit to him. Paul really did have everything he needed. And you can see those things in. 1 Corinthians 4, 11 to 13 and Philippians 4, 11 to 13. So we'll come back to the principle of godly contentment at the end. It's really important. It's a good place to finish. In verse 30 it says, You shall give to the priest to cause a blessing to rest in your house. So God promised that even in the period of the millennial temple to come, there would be blessing upon those who gave to God's work. The blessing would not only be financial, but it would rest on your house. That's a quote from David Guzik. Another quote from Wright. The priests earn their living by doing the special work that God has given them and their income comes from the offerings. God still calls some to what we call full-time service and in giving for their support we are giving to God as were the people who brought their offerings to the temple. Now, the subject of money has come up. I hate talking about money. Um, you know, if we don't um, pass a plate or bucket around or bag, whatever, we just have the tin at the back. But what we do as it comes up, we teach on it. So the principle of giving has come up, so I'm just going to basically just read it straight from the Word and let the Bible speak for itself. Because I know that money is a not a nice topic for a lot of people who have been burned by churches who have either manipulated or coerced or demanded or misused money in their church. So, the application here is giving to God out of our money and material possessions. So some question whether or not a pastor should be paid. Some also question whether or not or how much believers should give to the local church. Now, it's an important question, right? And again, as I was saying before, especially considering the financial abuse and manipulation carried out by many churches. But the Bible has lots of clear answers, so we're going to go through that. So the first question I'll answer is, what about the pastor or the elder? So 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, it says, Let the elders who perform the duties of their office well be considered doubly worthy of honour and of adequate financial support, especially those who labour faithfully in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. And again, the labourer is worthy of its hire. The next one is 1 Corinthians 9, 1-18. This is kind of the main passage I'm giving in the New Testament. 
This is Paul speaking. And he says, Am I not as free as anyone else? Am I not an apostle? And maybe he's talking to the Corinthian church. And the background of this is that when he was there, he never received any tithes or offerings from that church. He worked to support himself. So I'll start again. Am I not as free as anyone else? Am I not an apostle? Haven't I seen Jesus our Lord with my own eyes? Isn't it because of my work that you belong to the Lord? Even if others think I'm not an apostle, I certainly am to you. You yourselves are proof that I am the Lord's apostle. This is my answer to those who question my authority. Don't we have the right to live in your homes and share your meals? Don't we have the right to bring a believing wife with us as the other apostles and the Lord's brothers do and as Peter does? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have to work to support ourselves? What soldier has to pay his own expenses? What farmer plants a vineyard and doesn't have the right to eat some of its fruit? What shepherd cares for a flock of sheep and isn't allowed to drink some of the milk? Am I expressing a merely human opinion or does the law say the same thing? For the Lord Moses says, you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. Was God thinking only about oxen when he said this? Wasn't he actually speaking to us? Yes, it was written for us, so that the one who ploughs and the one who threshes the grain might both expect a share of the harvest. Since we have planted spiritual seed among you, aren't we entitled to a harvest of physical food and drink? If you support others who preach to you, shouldn't we have an even greater right to be supported? But we have never used this right. We would rather put up with anything than be an obstacle to the good news about Christ. So it's really important that pastor has a right approach, not demanding. Verse 13. Don't you realize that those who work in the temple get their meals from the offerings brought to the temple? That's what we're learning about today. And those who serve at the altar get a share of the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord ordered that those who preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from it. Yet I have never used any of these rights. And I'm not writing this to suggest that I want to start now. In fact, I'd rather die than to lose my right to boast about preaching without charge. Yet preaching the good news is not something I can boast about. I'm compelled by God to do it. How terrible for me if I didn't preach the good news. If I were doing this on my own initiative, I would deserve payment, but I have no choice, for God has given me the sacred trust. What then is my pay? It is the opportunity to preach the good news without charging anyone. That's why I never demand my rights when I preach the good news. So hopefully that gives you some insight into what the right attitude should be for the church leadership. What's their first priority? Preach the good news, yeah? And one of the reasons that it is actually good to pay the pastor elder is that they may have more time studying the word so they can more effectively teach and preach the word. Acts 6, 1-4 But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve apostles called a meeting of all the believers. They said, We apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer, 
and teaching the word. So that's another principle to consider. Now, another application. Why is it so important that we give? Now, Ray Comfort, he calls giving the last frontier. Why? Well, most people find that the love of money and the comfort and security that it can buy is the hardest thing to give up. Listen to what Ray Comfort says. It has been said that the wallet is the final frontier. It is the final area to be conquered. The last thing that comes to God in surrender. Jesus spoke much about money. He said that we cannot serve God and mammon. Matthew 6.24. I'll read that in a minute. Mammon was the common Aramaic word for riches, which is related to a Hebrew word signifying that which is to be trusted. So, what was Jesus saying? You can't trust what is to be trusted and God at the same time, yeah? So in other words, we cannot trust God and money at the same time. Either money is our source of joy, our great love, our sense of security, the supply of our needs, or God is. When you open your purse and wallet, give generously and regularly at your local church. A guide of how much you should give can be found in the tithe of the Old Testament, 10% of your income. Whatever amount you give, make sure you give something to the work of God. See Malachi 3, 8-11. Give because you want to, not because you have to. God loves a cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7. So learn to hold your money with a loose hand. And that's really important. Give because you want to, not because you have to. If you don't want to give, then please don't. We do not want to have a grudging giver. Someone who's going to be wishing they never did it, you know? It's horrible when that happens. So, 2 Corinthians 9, 6-8, the verse that Ray was talking about. It says this, Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have enough, have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. Now, coming back to reality here, in our material Western world, what is the greatest threat to our relationship with God? I believe it's materialism. Okay, which is why I'm talking about giving. Because it's in the passage, but I'm focusing on this because it's important for our relationship with God, which matters to me. And Matthew 6, 24 and 25 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will stand by and be devoted to the one and despise and be against the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, deceitful riches, money, possessions, or whatever is trusted in. Therefore, I tell you, stop being perpetually uneasy, anxious, and worried about your life, what you shall eat, or what you shall drink, or about your body, what you shall put on. Is not life greater in quality than food, and the body far above and more excellent than clothing? And 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So the trend seems to be, and I've read this a few times, 
that the richer the country, the less people give, especially as a percentage of their income. And again, the exception are the churches that manipulate people into giving through false teaching or legalism. But again, that money is often squandered on you know, buildings and uh, unnecessary things. And often the pastors fleece the flock and get rich from that, which is really, really bad. So why is it that we here are so rich in the Western world compared to the rest of the world are at the same time so reluctant to give? Well, money, wealth, and the pleasure and comfort and false security that money can buy is a powerful idol that our flesh loves. We want pleasure, we want comfort, we want security. It's not just money, it's what it gives us, yeah? The temporary pleasure, yeah? Temporary comfort, temporary security. So the Bible tells us that the mark of a believer completely sold out or committed to God is one who sacrificially gives to God's work. So I believe that Ray Comfort is correct when he teaches that giving is a cure for materialism. Why? Because when we're able to let go of something, it means that it no longer controls us. Say that again, because when we are able to let go of something, it means that it no longer controls us. If I'm not able to let go of something, to give something up, then it necessarily means that it is controlling me. It doesn't matter if it's money or whatever it is. Okay, Any kind of sin, any kind of, it could be sport, it could be anything like that. Yeah. And Paul gave the how genuine is your love test to the Corinthian church who were quite well off financially. So they would kind of represent our modern Western church. Yeah as compared to some other poorer churches like in the area of what is now Turkey where the churches were poor. But Corinth was a rich church. So 2 Corinthians 8, 1-9. Now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, again, remember, he's talking to the Corinthian church, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They're the poor churches. They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor. But they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in Rich generosity. Nothing's changed, right? For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. This is when there was a famine in Jerusalem and they wanted to help the people in Jerusalem. The believers there. Verse 5. They did even more than we had hoped. For their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us, just as God wanted them to do. So, a little pause here. We don't want to just give money and say, I've done my part, that's all I need to do. No, we give ourselves to the Lord. Giving of our finances is just a part of what we do. Verse 6, So we have urged Titus, who encouraged your giving in the first place, to return to you and encourage you to finish this ministry of giving. Since you excel in so many ways in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love from us. I want you to excel also in this generous act of giving. I am not commanding you to do this, but I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of the other churches. It's powerful, isn't it? You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty... He can make you rich. And this is the only correct motive for giving. 
If you're not giving because you love the Lord and you're so overwhelmed by what He's already given you that you just want to give something back, then don't give. Don't do it to impress people because no one's going to know anyway. So, will you take the test? Will you be free from the idol of materialism? How genuine is your love? Remember, it's not the amount that matters, but what you're able to give. So consider what Jesus said. Mark 12, 41-44 says, Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple and watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Many rich people put in large amounts. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions. For they gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. So who gave the most? There's a widow, right? She gave a tiny amount. So it's not how much you give, it's what it's costing you. Now it's a great story. I remember this as a kid, and it's something that's helped me in my giving. And it's William Colgate. I ran across an old book the other day entitled Spiritual Life Through Tithing by Ernest Thomas. Glancing through the book, I saw a brief paragraph about William Colgate, the founder of the Colgate Palmolive Company, maker of soaps and dental care products. William Colgate was a tither throughout his long and successful business career. He gave not merely one-tenth of the earnings of Colgate's soap products, but he gave two-tenths, then three-tenths, and finally five-tenths of all his income to the work of God in the world. During the latter days of his life, he revealed the origin of his devotion to the idea of tithing. When he was 16 years old, he left home to find employment in New York City. He had previously worked in a soap manufacturing shop. When he told the captain of the canal boat upon which he was travelling that he planned to make soap in New York City, the man gave him this advice. Someone will be the leading soap maker in New York. You can be that person. Listen carefully here. But you must never lose sight of the fact that the soap you make has been given to you by God. Honour him by sharing what you earn. Begin by tithing all you receive. William Colgate felt the urge to tithe because he recognised that God was a giver of all that he possessed, not only of opportunity, but even of the elements which were used in the manufacture of his products. William Colgate died in 1857 but left behind a company that is successful to this day and a college that bears his name. What can we learn about stewardship from Mr Colgate? Many things. Colgate not only believed in tithing but also believed in giving in an increasing measure over his life. It was not enough to give a tenth. Colgate wanted to express his love for the Lord by giving an increasing amount to the Lord's work. So notice his motivation for giving. Express his love for the Lord. Also, Colgate heard a testimony about tithing from someone who believed in it. This captain of the canal boat undoubtedly understood what it meant to tithe, and it was his personal testimony that encouraged Colgate. So we can influence our kids as well, yeah? Finally, Colgate recognised that by tithing, he gave back to God, who was a giver of all he possessed. God owns it all, and Colgate learned this important lesson early in his life. Do you believe in tithing as a personal testimony to the Lord's goodness toward you? I think today's church would benefit greatly by sharing more testimonies about tithing and giving as practical necessities for the Christian.
Again, listen carefully. Tithing involves personal surrender and sacrifice and has the potential to help us perhaps counter the rampant secularism and materialism of our society. I would encourage you to pray how the Lord may be directing you in this area of your spiritual life. Next time you brush your teeth, remember Colgate's testimony. (laughs) So that's all a quote from that website. Now, I promised you I finished with godly contentment. So, our last application. The secret to godly contentment is understanding that God is all I need. But I will never know that Christ is all I need until Christ is all I have. So here we have a problem. How's God going to fix this? Well, he's going to take away those things that I'm relying on, so I will learn to depend on only him. Which is why life can be difficult sometimes. But the result of it is glorious. We learn to trust in Christ alone. So, a little illustration to help us. Imagine you just finished eating a delicious lamb roast. You know, your potatoes, gravy, pumpkin, peas, corn on the cob, you know, all that kind of stuff, yeah? So yummy, you have three servings. You are just so bloated. <laughs> and you can't eat anything else. And someone comes with maccas, or chips, or chocolate, or you know, KFC, whatever. And they say, would you like some? And you say, no, no thank you. I am full. I am content. I am completely satisfied. Now, change the situation, change the scenario. Imagine you're out hiking and got lost. You haven't eaten for a week. Now, the same people offer you the same junk foods. What would you say? Most likely, yes. I'll have five Big Macs and, you know, three soft serves and two of those, what do you call them, McFlurry things full of sugar. And when you're finished, you probably throw up. So, that's what happens when we don't choose to make Christ at all in all when we don't choose to make Christ all we need and all we want, and when we don't choose to satisfy ourselves with our love relationship with Him, then we inevitably end up spiritually hungry and unsatisfied, and therefore we will seek satisfaction elsewhere. Does that make sense? If we're not first satisfied in Christ, then we will seek to be satisfied with the things of the world. But if we're already satisfied and full with what God gives us in our relationship with Him, then we won't be seeking the things of the world. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Not that I was ever in need. This is Paul speaking. For I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Now, I like that first sentence. Not that I was ever in need. Paul was naked. He was hungry. He was homeless. All those things. But he did not consider those things needs. First Timothy 6, 5 through 12. Godly contentment and the effect of money. These people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt, and they have turned their backs on the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. This is talking about false teachers, right? So these people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt, and they have turned their backs on the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. So that's your false teachers these days, right? 
Verse 6, yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth or great gain in a different translation. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. And I didn't plan those Proverbs verses this morning. That was just part of our routine. So it's amazing how God put them there. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. But you, Timothy, put your own name in there, right? But you are a man of God and so run from all these evil things. Pursue righteousness and live a godly life, along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to the eternal life which God has called you, which you have declared so well before many witnesses. So again, we come right back to the beginning, yeah? What's our inheritance? Eternal salvation, yeah? Hold tightly to the eternal life which God has called you. You've got to remember that this world is temporary. What God offers us is eternal. The things we can see are temporary. The things we can't see are eternal. Hebrews 13.5, one of my favorite verses. Do not love money. Be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. And so once again, we see the dangers of materialism. Jesus was not mucking around. He wasn't joking when he said, you can't serve God and money at the same time. Living in a Western culture, this is really serious. Trusting in money and possessions necessarily means we're not trusting in God. Money has become the idol. And sometimes we don't even know it. The only cure is to willingly give it away. If you can't give it away, then it owns you. So who are you going to serve? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the material blessings you have given us. But I also pray, Father, that you will give us the power, give us the strength to not let them control us. Lord, I pray you be working in every one of our hearts this morning as we live in this rich country of Australia to recognize that we are being tempted and we don't even realize it most of the time. Are we looking for comfort, for security, for protection, for pleasure, all those things? Nice foods and all those things. What would we do if those things were taken away from us? Would we complain? Or could we be like Paul who said, I've never lacked anything? Despite being in all those situations of lacking food and lacking clothing and lacking a home. Help us to realize that we are not promised any physical blessings as the church. But we are promised the spiritual blessings and we look forward to that with great anticipation and eager hope. So we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.